there is no such thing as a left brain or right brain person. But even though they look identical, uh, they have the same mass, the same overall um, to appearance, they have the same basic structure, they are symmetrical, and yet their functions are deeply asymmetrical. And uh, it's kind of worthwhile uh, from a spiritual perspective to understand a little bit about how the brain creates consciousness in terms of then understanding our spiritual journey. Namely, half of your frontal lobe, the left in almost all cases, is involved in not only hosting language. If you have a stroke in your left hemisphere of your brain, you will pretty much lose all of your language capabilities. A lot of your logic will fall away. You won't be able to sustain a narrative about your life. And the thing that allows you to have individual goals that you move to in your life is situated there. But you also have, so I'm going to refer to that as the kind of intellectual mind, and then you, or the narrative mind, and then we also have what's called the emotional mind, which is the right hemisphere of your brain. And that's doing very, very, very different stuff. Whereas the left hemisphere is essentially plotting us in a line from the past to the present to the future, constructing a sense of who we are, and, and maintaining that in language. Your right hemisphere is largely unconscious. You're not aware of its operations except when it's fully activated. It's generally producing its uh, content or its influences are very much a part of how we make decisions and we perceive the world, but we're not aware of it. And what it's doing is maintaining secure connections with other people. That's the role of your emotional mind. The left hemisphere is all about achieving survival advantages that are largely individual. So if we want to write a book or paint a painting or have a gallery show, or we want to become an actor, or if we want to become somebody famous or be recognized, if we want to have a wonderful life story filled with a lot of experiences we can share, all of that is the product of the narrative mind, the, the left hemisphere. The right hemisphere, meanwhile, works behind the scenes making sure that we feel securely connected to both meaningful friends, or what the Buddha called Kalyanamita, wise spiritual friends, and also maintains a sense of uh, a security in our social environment. So all of our emotions, which are produced largely by the right hemisphere, are in essence messages about how well connected we feel to other people. That's the root of our emotional life. So, to understand, just to give you a brief running overview, um, positive emotions are essentially telling us that we feel securely connected to other people. And negative emotions mean that we feel 
or we have experienced a sense of either real or possible disconnection from the people we rely on. Shame is a punishing emotion that is something that arises after we feel we've done something that harms the tribe or the community or the social group to which we are part of. Pride, on the other hand, is the inverse. It's, some, it's an emotion that rewards us for doing something that benefits a large group of other people. Anger is the urge to punish those who we believe are jeopardizing important attachment figures, people that we rely on. Guilt arises when we harm an attachment figure, someone that we care about. Sorrow is what arises, and grief as well, when we lose connection to an important emotionally relied upon figure in our life. And joy or happiness is the emotions that we experience when we connect securely with other people. So, essentially they are subtle often. We're only what's known as tacitly aware of our emotions in many cases. But behind the scenes of all of our choices, our emotions are weighing in. And very often in life, we can have battles between our narrative mind that wants us to accomplish things and our emotional mind which wants us to connect. People can have battles between how much they want to achieve in life versus how much they want to be closely connected to friends, loved ones, family. We can have massive goals and plans and yet at the same time to achieve them very often we can feel a sense of emotional discontent if not outright uh, dismay even when we accomplish our goals because we've sacrificed the necessary connections that make us feel secure human beings are social animals we survived because we excelled at uh, connecting with each other. The other species we competed with to survive did not connect very well. That was our advantage. We really have two extreme advantages that allowed us to survive. The first, that we connect very well, and the second, no other species can envision the future as well as we can. So our left hemispheres allow us to visualize outcomes that haven't occurred as of yet. And our right hemisphere, while we're doing that, keeps us connected to the people around us. So we can visualize future advantages and at the same time connect well with a community. Interestingly enough, when people are using their left hemisphere primarily to work through problems, even though the right hemisphere is working in the background, if they're primarily focused on future planning, their eyes will tend to look up. That's when the left hemisphere becomes slightly dominant. On the other hand, when the right hemisphere becomes slightly dominant and we think about lost connections or attachment figures or we become caught up and obsessing about loved ones, the eyes tend to look down. 
That's what the right hemisphere does. So they, there's a, two separate agendas. Now, very often because consciousness and because language is situated in the left hemisphere, we naturally tend to give a greater sense of importance and priority to achieving things in our life than to connecting well with the people around us. We can often be mystified by the fact that even though we've set some pretty lofty goals and met them sometimes in our life, we can be mystified by emotional disruption in our life because we haven't taken into account our need to be securely interacted or connected with others. What this means is essentially it's, uh, I'm setting the groundwork to understand why the Buddha and why so many different spiritual paths emphasize morality as a key to lasting human happiness. Morality is essentially at its heart a set of guidelines that help us connect with other people without causing harm. That's all they are. Because we tend to prioritize our individual goals and our narratives and worry about how people think about us and under-prioritize just the feeling of emotionally connecting with other people in a safe, secure, real way, we generally need some form of moral foundation in our life to steer us away from the behaviors that give us a survival advantage and allow us to get closer to our goals but sacrifice our connections with people we rely upon. Without a moral foundation, our impulses would be to occasionally lie or to take advantage of other people's weakness or to present ourselves in false ways to get our needs met. And yet, Every time we do this, of course, we feel that our emotional connections with others are harmed. And so we create a greater divide between achieving our goals and yet at the same time balancing how important our emotional lives are. So the role of morals is to simply help us balance towards connecting well without causing harm to others. Now, many spiritual paths that happen to be based on gods present their moral foundations as if God is some Santa Claus up there observing people and deciding that they should go to hell if they don't follow these commandments. So the way that they get people to buy into moral scheme is by establishing, punishing uh, bad parent kind of uh, processes where we believe that if we run afoul of a moral scheme, that will be punished. And of course, the problem with that scheme is that people very quickly find out that even if they break a moral foundation, they don't wind up being punished in the way they've been informed that they would be. Very often, unlike 
the presentations in Bibles and in other holy books, there's no lightning bolt that strikes us dead if we masturbate or whatever <laughs> certain uh, spiritual paths tell us is wrong. Atheistic spiritual paths, on the other hand, do not posit that you are running afoul of some natural law if you violate a moral code. The message is simply that if you do, you will wind up not feeling very happy in the long term. So it's not a sense of, oh, I uh, stole something from my neighbor's backyard, I'm going to wind up in hell. The message is that if I feel the need to take something that doesn't belong to me, what it's saying is that I value commodities over secure, reliable connections that are authentic with the people I live nearby. And that emotional behavior will leave us not feeling very good because it will violate the way the right hemisphere of the brain works. The Buddha knew this, and he stated in his basic observation of karma, which is essentially that karma, in a nutshell, is if we act harmfully, we wind up having negative emotions. If we act skillfully, we wind up having positive emotions. That's it. There's nothing more to it. I know you've been presented with the belief and TV that karma has something to do with if you, you know, kick a dog, the dog will bite you. If you steal something, somebody else will steal from you. But when it all boils down, the Buddha in the Kalama Sutta says, even if there is no rebirth in this life, here and now, you will live free from hatred, if you live free from hatred, and live free from causing harm to others, you will live in a happy and peaceful mind. That's the bottom line. He's not saying you get rewards in the world. He's not saying you wind up in a mansion or great external things will happen to you. Sorry, there's no ticker tape parade very often. And there are Dick Cheney's in the world who are profiteering and winding up with lots of loot. But that has nothing to do with karma. Karma is a psychological observation that if we want to feel at peace in our own minds, we have to act in ways that are not causing harm. So, if we want people to have a moral foundation, including ourselves, one of the basic foundations is to not have too many precepts or moral codes. Because if you run around making all kinds of things that are absolutely fine into moral violations, we're pretty much going to give up. So all that crap about masturbation and, and all the crap that other spiritual paths say about uh, people who fall outside of straight sex, members of the LGBTQ community, forget about all that. The only moral codes that really have any foundation are, in my view, the Buddhist five, which are to not kill, to not steal, to not cause harm through speech, to not cause harm through sex, and to not cause harm through intoxication. 
Now, as I look around this fine conglomeration of people, I'm going to take a stab in the dark and think that most of you are not committing murder frequently in your lives. And I'm also not going to, I'm going to spare you any mention of stealing, because even if you do download a couple of songs illegally, <laughs> or Game of Thrones, or whatever it is that, you know, uh, I don't care. <laughs> I really don't. What is germane? I think the greatest harm, of course, comes through misrepresentation of our sexual intentions, and even more so how we use speech. In our lives, I've seen that that are the two greatest um, arenas in which we are often sabotaging our feelings of self-worth and establishing secure, reliable connections that are honest and authentic. So, a couple of observations then. The first is that if we want to uh, maximize our chances of feeling good about ourselves, of living in happy minds, we need to really focus on those two areas. And I would say, first off, that um, the greatest area where we do harm to our relationships and cause... Uh, emotional cutoffs with loved ones is in the arena of how we speak when we become frustrated or angry or disappointed. Now, in my experience, uh, people want deeply reliable relationships and after we make a mistake and we explode, even if we've been provoked or otherwise, the most important thing to do is to repair the relationship, which is to essentially communicate that um, even though part of us is very frustrated or angry, that that's not the entirety. That the human mind doesn't have, isn't made up of single emotions, but it has a vast capability of harboring both love and frustration at the same time. We're all capable of being deeply disappointed with the people we love or care about, and yet at the same time to want to stay connected. And very often, though, when we're frustrated and we've acted or we've, we've allowed our anger to be expressed, we fail to reestablish a sense that the other person's uh, presence in our life is still deeply important to us. It's possible to communicate both. In my experience, I've found that the most important thing for me to be mindful of is that feeling of needing to say something. You know that experience when you really just want to say something, where you really want to get it off your chest where somebody's saying something and it just feels so wrong, the facts they're stating seem so misguided, the, their version of what has happened feels so 
vastly different from what we experience. And it feels as if, if we don't present our truths or our experience in that conversation, that they're going to get away with something. And yet I've found that in my life, uh, perhaps paradoxically or ironically, the staying present, listening, and then pausing and stepping away and deactivating before I present my understanding, my view, my experience, has saved more relationships, more friendships, and has allowed me to sustain uh, long-term uh, relational uh, I don't even know how to finish that sentence. Long-term <laughs> relationships in my life. I find that so much of the sabotaging experiences that I had earlier in my life was when I simply didn't know how to take a break, walk away, detach, and deactivate. This doesn't mean that I don't present my experience or what my view is, but I found that absolutely nothing is gained when it is propelled by force of anger, impatience, or in fact there's this feeling of they're getting away with something. I would much rather now in my life allow somebody to get away with something than to go through the uh, what I've seen to be the almost inevitable backfiring of not knowing how to deactivate conflicts. Conflicts that are deactivated, I don't mean getting rid of them. I simply mean when they get to a place where they're taking on an emotional momentum of their own and the statements are escalating in either outrage or insinuation, it's really important to be willing to be the one that detaches, walks away. Communicating that. And then once I've for me, it's very much a body process, which means I've found that if my shoulders feel suddenly locked, for me, that becomes the first cue that I'm in that place where I feel that my sense of what's real and true is being violated, and I need to, I need to essentially... Uh, I need to counter immediately and have my experience be known. Uh, in that case, what I'll do is when I walk away, I'll wait until my shoulders soften, my belly becomes soft, my breath becomes a little slower, a little deeper, a little longer. If my body is relaxed, then it's safe for me to go back in to the conversation. As a byproduct of that, sometimes people say when they've gone through a breakup and they want to know when it's safe to go back and reconnect with the person. I often say don't trust your mind. Don't even trust what other people say. Ask your body. If you think about reconnecting with them and you start to feel that that subtle tightening in the shoulders, the front of the chest, the, the feeling of being unsafe in the body, then it's not 
time. But once we get to that place where we see the other person and there's that sense of non-activation, that the emotional mind which speaks to us through the body remains calm, that means that we've moved that person from the category of attachment figure to somebody that we properly grieved and let go of. On the other hand, in relationships that we want to maintain, if we keep a conversation going when we're physically active, we're physically tense, we are in that body that wants to respond, in my experience, what happens is we are in a reactive mind that doesn't have any more choices. We're no longer capable of filtering out different ways to express ourselves, different views. We're no longer capable of hearing different perceptions. Because when the body is tense, it means that the amygdala is activated. When the amygdala is activated, much of the lateral parts of the brain are shut off. In other words, in layman's terms, we're no longer filtering choices or different perceptions. We're just in a reactive, defensive, survival-based mind. And that's no state to restore or heal. Now, another factor to bear in mind when we want to have a, a kind of moral code to maintain relationships in our life is to know how to respond to bids and to maintain communication, even during difficult communications. The uh, psychologist I like very much, John Gottman, pretty much summarized four basic rules to follow in communication. And if we follow them, in my experience, there's very little that can go wrong in a relationship. So the first is to, under no situation whatsoever, fall into the habit of contempt. What is contempt? <laughs> contempt is actually a very broad category that doesn't just mean uh, you know, the normal signs of contempt. Any form of eye-rolling, dismissiveness, huffing, yawning openly, uh, <laughs> turning away in a way that's meant to suggest that somebody else is uh, um, uh, stating something that is not worthy of being listened to, does, as Gottman noticed in his research, more damage to our relationships than just about any other behavior. The second is to avoid defensiveness, which means when somebody's saying something that completely violates our view of the truth, of what we believe happened between us or in a, a situation, rather than focusing entirely on the factual statements, see if we can find the emotion beneath the factual claims. So, for instance... Somebody might say to me, uh, oh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the last time somebody said something. That, um, somebody could say, 
Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> My life's going blank. All right. Uh, I've had people say that I'm a messy fellow. <laughs> I am, in fact. But sometimes when I hear that, that I don't clean up after myself, um, the mind, if I'm in a place where I'm tense, I might feel, I might feel the sense of uh, either uh, I don't want to hear it then, or it's not a fact that has any validity given all the stress I'm under, <laughs> or how busy my life is, or I might, in fact, argue that the other person is messy too. <laughs> and in fact, any adult with any degree of intelligence can reframe an argument endlessly in a way that leads to stalemate. So, for instance, somebody could say to me, Josh, you're messy, and then I could say, yes, but you don't do this. And then they could say, but I did do that. And I could say, no, three Wednesdays ago you didn't do that. <laughs> And then they could say, but you didn't, didn't do that. And I could say, yes, but I, you've never done this. And then it goes on forever. Factual claims, in fact, lead virtually nowhere. Because it turns out that people are capable of perceiving worlds in vastly different ways. We all live in very subjective minds. And even more so, we all can frame narratives in different ways. So, for instance, if uh, I walked up to you on the street and purposely stepped on your toe, you might frame the, the narrative as, hey, what the hell, you just walked up to me and stepped on my toe, right? And that, to you, might seem like a perfectly decent way to frame the narrative. But I might respond, oh, but I, I'm over 50 years old, and I was raised in the 1970s, and I was mugged in New York, and I grew up in a family where my father was an alcoholic, and I was a drug addict for years, and I got sober for 20 years, and now I'm struggling to survive as a Buddhist teacher. <laughs> And of course I'm going to step on your toe because you're in my way. And then you might feel, oh. And then you might tell me your entire story and then we don't get anywhere. On the other hand, if I let go of the factual claims and I simply hear somebody saying, you're messy, and I ask, okay, what's the emotional message behind that? And that generally is something along the lines of, I don't feel seen, I don't feel like my efforts are being appreciated, I don't feel like my needs are being taken into account. And when I open to the other person's emotional reality, I might not agree with their factual claims, but I find that if I simply restate their emotional experience back to them, that that really is enough to salvage a relationship. For ex example, I might not agree that I'm a messy person, but if I say, oh, I hear that you're saying that you don't feel that I'm noticing your efforts or that I'm not putting as much effort in, I hear that you're saying something along the lines of that you don't feel appreciated, does that sound accurate? And then they say, yes, that is what I feel. Then, even though I might not clean up any more than I do, <laughs> and I might not change any behavior, 
just the fact that I've acknowledged somebody's underlying emotional state generally makes them feel rewarded and safer and more connected. And it turns out, studies show, that the right hemisphere does, in fact, feel validated when somebody announces their emotional state back to them. In fact, Lieberman has done a lot of research that shows that people are deactivated simply when somebody says, oh, I can see that you're angry, sad, frustrated, disappointed. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're agreeing with their statement of facts, that we're going to do anything differently. So even though most of us are very grudging about acknowledging each other's emotional states, in fact, it doesn't mean that we're obligating ourselves to anything. And yet, that simple behavior salvages so many relationships because people deep down want to feel seen. That's what makes us feel secure in the world. We want to feel emotionally seen. So besides not showing contempt, not being defensive, Gottman also noted not criticizing, which means uh, essentially suggesting always that there's a better way to do things our way. <laughs> um, all right. No appreciative laughter with that one. Okay. <laughs> uh, probably we've all been criticized in our life and we don't find it particularly funny. So, but you get the idea. We live in, a, in minds that always believe that our way, because we've done things our way, the way we keep our house organized, the way we do our work, the way we walk to our jobs, the way we, uh, uh, we, the way we live is, because it's so familiar, it seems right. And anybody can feel a sense that other people's ways of doing things are wrong. You should see what happens when you put four Buddhist teachers together in a small house for nine days. <laughs> By the end, we're all looking at each other like, that's the way, that's what you eat for breakfast? Really? <laughs> So even the, we all struggle with acknowledging the subjectivity of behaviors, and the Buddha called this sila nusati. We all have, uh, or actually called it sila nupasana, sila nupadana, which means we all have a, a, uh, an attachment to our way of doing things, and that very often... Uh, uh, leads to bizarre situations. One of my favorite is, uh, I remember years ago, uh, many years ago, moving in with a girlfriend uh, into an apartment, and uh, we all had our silverware, and uh, I put the silverware in the drawer, and my girlfriend said, it doesn't belong there. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, we just moved in here. Is there, is there some sign that I missed in the apartment or the lease that says that the silverware goes in that cabinet? And she just said, no, that's wrong to put it there. And we all have that. She wasn't wrong. You know, that's just very normal and very human. 
<laughs> but it also sabotages relationships, let me tell you. <laughs> so the fourth and the final thing I'm going to bring tonight, because I'm sweating profusely and uh, I'm going to let us go, but the fourth way we sacrifice relationships is in uh, stonewalling, which is emotionally disconnecting when somebody's talking, when we get uncomfortable suddenly drifting away from the conversation, disconnecting, uh, looking elsewhere, uh, or trying to change the subject when somebody's bringing up something. Now, there are ways when we're uncomfortable with the topic that we don't feel prepared to talk about that we can change the subject, but to do it by stonewalling is essentially to look away, to not respond, to get, oh, look at this thing on Facebook, isn't that? So that's not the way. And that damages relationships, because if somebody has something that they want to express to us or get our attention, uh, to disconnect does deep harm to the relationship. And interestingly enough, Gottman's studies revealed that all bids for attention matter. It doesn't matter whether I'm telling you, hey, I just got into a car accident, or hey, I just found that, I just saw this cutest cat video on Facebook. <laughs> you, the listener, might think that the, the talk about my horrible day at work or my car accident is more important, but actually it turns out that relationships are sustained by the reliability of how well people respond to bids for attention, not the emotional depth of certain bids. So if we are not good at paying attention and putting aside what we're doing and turning to the people that we care about, it doesn't matter whether they're trying to show us something that seems to us of no import whatsoever. If we want to sustain our sense of secure connection, we have to be willing to not disconnect. We have to be willing to open our hearts and pay attention. I'll conclude by saying that if you want to look up the Buddha's teaching on this, it's called the Friend Sutta, and the Buddha says, the whole of the spiritual path rests on finding people who are wise friends, and those wise friends are people who are available, who don't abandon us, who stay connected, who listen without prejudging or planning what they're going to say and open to us and keep our truths. So, I hope that's an explanation of why having some moral foundation and working on our relationships is in our best interest. I thank you for listening.